Hello and welcome to Maiden Mother Matriarch with me, Louise Perry. My guest today is Matt Goodwin. He's a professor of politics at the University of Kent and the author of a new best-selling book, Values, Voice and Virtue, The New British Politics. We spoke about what Matt describes as the new elites and their enormous power over British institutions, why no one really wants to be described as a member of the new elite, and why the Conservative Party could yet be overtaken by a new populist right party. As always, you can also find this podcast at my substack, louiseperry.substack.com, where you can find extended episodes, bonus episodes, and the MMM chat community. Enjoy. Uh, all right, Matt, I should start with congratulations for two things. One is that the book went straight into the Sunday Times bestseller list. So huge congratulations on that front. Uh, the other is that you seem to have driven the whole of the British Commentariat completely bananas um, <laughs> for several weeks, which I think also deserves some congratulations. Uh, could you explain why um, you've got up their noses so successfully? Well, the the book uh, Values, Voice and Virtue basically argues that what we've what we've got um, underpinning a lot of the political turmoil in Britain, and I would argue actually across most Western democracies over the last 10 years or so, the vote for Brexit, Trump and so on, uh, is really about this elite graduate class who um, I call the new elite, um, just as a sort of descriptor, but but basically they, they tend to come from um, professional managerial um, um, families, they tend to live in the cities, university towns, but crucially, over the last 10 years, they've been drifting very left on cultural questions and identity questions. And so what we've got in Western democracies, I'm arguing, at least in the book, is is this education-based polarisation between the elite graduate class on one side and a larger graduate class or non-graduates on the other, who on questions relating to things like sex, gender, immigration, borders, um, are basically moving moving um, at different speeds and often in different directions. And so the commentariat in Britain, I think, reacted interestingly to that because I think they perceive themselves to be the sort of oppressed underdogs who have no power at all, whereas what I'm saying is actually they have enormous cultural, social and political power, um, which they've been exerting through the institutions, which they disproportionately dominate, so media, creative industries, cultural institutions, political parties, House of Commons. Uh, and so these cultural debates um, have really become much sharper because they're imposing this worldview, I would argue a minority worldview on much of the rest of the country, and that's um, reflected in the political rebellions that we've been living through, the rise of populism, Brexit in Britain, Boris Johnson in the US, Trump and elsewhere, where voters have been saying they don't really share that particular set of values. And they also now no longer feel that they have a voice in the institution. So that's essentially the thesis of the book, which has obviously riled up a lot of people who who belong to the new elite, who, uh, who have spent much of the last two weeks on Twitter telling me how they don't belong to the new elite and how actually they don't have any power at all. So that's been an interesting uh, experience. I mean, I I say this as a member of the new elite. I'm clearly a member of the new elite, you know, based on every reasonable definition and a member of the British Commentariat. But my view from reading the book was that you're just obviously right. And, you know, the central insight that, that progressive politics hold sway in an enormous number of powerful institutions seems to me to be obviously true. But then I wonder if, thinking about some of my peers in journalism, 
I wonder if one of the reasons why they don't necessarily identify themselves in that way is partly because they've sort of part of the function of the politics is to be um, a representative of the, of the voiceless and the powerless and, and 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 all these kind of marginalized communities. And so it's hard to see yourself as being a dominant voice when you framed your own sort of moral cause in that in that way. The other is because they very often don't own property um, and find it really hard actually to get on the housing ladder and feel very downwardly socially mobile often. Because if we're talking about people whose parents are also members of the new elite and, and, and are in expensive places like London and in prestige occupations that don't necessarily pay that well, like journalism, on the one hand, they have this enormous cultural power, which you, which you outlined correctly. But on the other hand, they often can't even buy a one bedroom flat. Um, I, do you think that that might be part of the reason why that kind of self-identification, they're, they're reluctant to see themselves as being elite in any way? I, I think it's I think it's definitely part of the story. But just just in regard to your first point, look, if we look at the actual evidence on um, the value divides between people who basically, I would argue, dominate the institutions and and sort of normal ordinary voters out there, if you want to say it like that. Um, the evidence on that is overwhelming. I mean, we've got a lot of evidence in the UK that shows, for example, MPs, members of parliament on both the left and the right, lead much further to the cultural left than most voters, including many conservatives, by the way. So when members of the new elite sort of ran onto Twitter after my book was released and said, but we've got this conservative government, you know, they sort of completely missed the point that I'm making, which is that actually on both the left and the right of politics now, you have really an elite graduate class that has drifted left on cultural questions. So I don't know, Louise, you might not be in the new elite. I don't know your views inside and out and so on. But but what I but and there are always outliers. I mean, there are always outliers. Right. But I'm talking about general general trends. Um, but the issue about about status is a really important one, because, um, you know, I think the first thing to say is, I, you know, I'm by no means the first person to point to this group and say culturally, politically, geographically, and socially, they're in a very different place from from many other voters. I mean, you can go through writings in, in America and, and Europe and elsewhere. Christopher Lash, Michael Lynn, David Brooks, David Goodhart, Richard Florida have all in different ways pointed to the group that I'm talking about. So they've talked about a cultural, creative knowledge class, the Bobos, the bourgeoisie bohemians who basically work in the BBC or the public sector, work in creative industries, advertising, marketing, um, universities. I would also perhaps include schools, um, civil service, um, and, and, and they wield this power. But I think where I perhaps depart from some of those other accounts is that I'm also saying that today the notion of status has changed in an important way. And if you go back and you look at, say, the, the sort of old elite or the earlier elite, the, the main source of status there was around wealth, was around income, was around um, leisure time was around inherited titles. And I think today status is is really morphing into being about the embrace of radical progressivism, the embrace of what we might call the sort of diversity complex, woke politics, whatever your favorite term. And I appreciate everybody has different, different, different terms. But essentially the elite graduate class have embraced radical progressivism, you know, partly because they think, you know, they're nice people and they want to make the world a better place. But fundamentally it's also a status game that they're using the vocabulary that comes with the ideological belief system. They're, they're spending much of their time on social media, signaling that to other people, as we saw this week um, uh, in the reaction to my book. And they're using this really to try and not only cement their status among the elite, but also disassociate themselves from the morally inferior groups who are 
maybe supporting Brexit, supporting Donald Trump, maybe haven't gone to elite universities, might be non-graduates, might be working class voters, the bigots, the, the racists, the gammons, the Karens, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that um, the, the nature of status has changed. And within journalism, you know, I, I do think you've 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 hit an important point, because if you actually look at the backgrounds of journalists in, in Britain and the US, I mean, if you look at books in America like Bad News by um, Batya uh, Ungasagon, or if you look at similar work by the Reuters Institute at Oxford, they've shown that journalism has become a profession of astonishing privilege over the last half century. It's much more elitist now than it used to be. Um, local media has collapsed, regional media has collapsed. So there is no sort of working class, non-graduate, ordinary sort of background, um, ordinary journalists um, with uh, with diverse backgrounds anymore. Often now, particularly in Britain, journalists are going straight from Oxbridge into the newsroom. And senior journalists will tell me often uh, they also view themselves now as activist journalists that are trying to change the world rather than actually objective journalists who are there to report and search for truth. And and I think that's certainly become part of the story. And David Brooks, listening to you, I, I remember David Brooks talked about this with regard to academics, but he talked about status this sort of notion of, of status loss where they, they go to hedge funds and banks to give talks and then go back to their one room apartment and sort of be, be sort of confronted with the notion that while they thought they were you know incredibly influential and they are in many ways influential, they're part of the epistemic class who are deciding what is socially acceptable, what isn't socially acceptable, what norms we use, what norms we don't, what's considered considered legitimate, what isn't, they would then go back to their apartment and sort of have this crushing sense of actually, well, they're not high status, and that would drive a lot of resentment and envy and, and anger. And I think partly we've seen some of that. We've seen some of that uh, as well. So yeah, I mean, I, I certainly think that's part of the story. I I think that so much of this is... Yes, directed towards, as you say, the gammons, the Karens, you know, the contempt for um, uh, low middle and working class people. Um, I think also there's a lot of intra-elite resentment as well, because you mentioned academics going to hedge funds or whatever. I mean, if if you're thinking about um, cohorts in in my generation at Oxford, at Russell Group, Ivy League universities, there's quite a big bifurcation between people who choose to do the prestigious low-paid jobs like academia like journalism and the very high-paid jobs like law and finance and so on and I I'm sure that part of the thing that motivates the activist journalists and so on is that feeling that you know yes I'm low status in terms of my earnings but here's a way in which I can assert my moral status over not just the sort of outgroup in my own um, nation state but also like literally my peers at university and at school <laughs> it's 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 an easy source of of uh, of of um emotional solace i would say yeah absolutely and i'm um, i don't know if you know the, the american writer richard hananier has made that very point that essentially why why do why do more radically progressive liberal socially liberal minded people end up dominating the institutions and and in his argument at least which i pick up on in the book is is that essentially they prize um, you know lower income positions that bring cultural influence, whereas Republicans and conservatives you know are you know, a bit more pragmatic, shall we say, a bit more I suppose instrumental in some sense. They want to go into positions, they want to go into jobs that bring them um, you know income, that bring them you know perhaps greater sense of economic security and so forth. And and 
Whereas, you know, to make it in media today, to make it in a think tank circuit today, uh, having worked in a number of think tanks over the last 15 years, the reality is unless you're coming from a family that's already in the managerial professional classes, it's going to be almost impossible for you to really um, make it in those industries and to have the the support. And that's why, you know, if you look at the the British media and the profile of journalists today, um, about 90 percent now belong to the graduate class. Uh, half of those have graduated from Oxbridge. Um, you know, only about 35, 38 percent of the country belong to the graduate class and only about 7 percent. No, sorry, only about 1% graduate from Oxbridge, 7% go to private schools. So, you know, this group is is really overrepresented. Um, and also in terms of the columnists, and then at the senior level, it becomes even more pronounced. So if you look at things, as I do in the book, you know, BBC managers, senior directors, um, I had to laugh over the last couple of weeks, seeing many of these people come out and sort of critique um, my argument in the book but but people who are who are fitting this exact profile you know who have who have passed through and are now wielding enormous influence and I think partly they they can't they can't see it and I think to accept it at the end of you know nearly 13 years of conservative government as well after Brexit these were deeply traumatic events for this particular group um, that has been moving left in response to those uh, events I think it's incredibly difficult for them to, to accept the notion as you say, that within the elite, there are different elites. I mean, you know, I've never said there is not an old conservative uh, pro-business Tory elite. I mean, I, I talk about that in the book, but I think what I'm saying is that the axis of power now is tilting away from that elite in terms of culture, in terms of society, in terms of politics, and is now rapidly tilting in favour of this new elite, um, which has simply become much more dominant and influential. And um, once you step out of Twitter, which is itself dominated by by left progressives, they're about five times more likely to to tweet regularly and to share their political views on social media. Once you step out of that bizarre environment and you look at, at what is actually happening in, in you know out, out there in the real world, um, I think that thesis is pretty obvious to everybody who sat watching the adverts on television, watching the political debates, watching the BBC homepage, uh, watching the latest books in the bestseller list, excluding my own, obviously. And, some other books that are also wonderful that I've also read on, on related to this podcast. And um, generally, you know, this sense that actually the, uh, you know, the national conversation is now really reflecting a minority set of values, not the values that are, that are, that are held by many other people in the country. This might be surprising as well to people out, outside of the UK, but you know, yes, we have had 14 years of conservative government, but the conservative party is, by no means a sort of traditionally right wing party. I mean, there, there are obviously some um, social, socially conservative MPs. For a long time, the dominant strain within the Tory party has been double liberalism. You know, so socially liberal combined with economically liberal. So, 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 so pro immigration, um, generally free marketeer, but combined with things like you know, it was conservative government that introduced gay marriage. Um, it was conservative government who actually pushed a lot of the uh trans activist agenda early on before there was a significant backlash um it, you, you know th this idea that the conservatives are sort of holding up some um uh traditional status quo is completely false uh, the the amazing social change actually we've seen in the last 14 years not just permitted but actually often encouraged by the conservative government um, I, which I'd, I'd say on that point, we're quite different from other, say America doesn't seem to quite have that same 
dynamic where that there are still meaningful differences between Republicans and Democrats in a way that I'm not sure that there are between um, Conservative and Labour parties here. Maiden Mother Matriarch is brought to you by Keeper, the world's most advanced matchmaking solution. Now, many of you will know that I'm normally extremely suspicious of dating apps like Tinder and Bumble, which tend to produce repeat customers who must endure endless, miserable hookups and short-term relationships without ever finding a spouse. Well, Keeper is a completely different kind of service. Its algorithm prioritises immediate attraction, but also, crucially, long-term compatibility, because forever is the goal. Everyone in the Keeper matchmaking pool is there because they want to find a spouse. Using psychometric tests like Big Five, IQ and masculine feminine polarity, Keeper can accurately predict who you're going to have the strongest chemistry with. The platform only gives you a match if you are an exact fit psychometrically and if the match offers everything that you've told Keeper you're looking for in a partner. It won't waste your time with only good enough matches like other dating apps and matchmaking services will. So, Find your keeper at keeper.ai. That's K E E P E R.ai. And I think that point essentially is is the one I'm making and, and the response to the book, which is what we've had conservative governments here in Britain since 2010 how can we possibly have a powerful new elite that isn't in power well the answer to that question is look at the conservative party and look at the direction of the conservative party and you know the problem I think that many voters have in Britain is that when they look at the conservative party they increasingly question whether it is what its name implies Uh, economically it's much further to the right than many voters would like it to be culturally it's much further to the left than many voters would like it to be. And you can see that even in the aftermath of Brexit. You know, we've had this slightly hysterical, irrational debate about uh, the Conservative Party becoming a hard right, far right party um, on on Twitter and among the sort of progressive class. But actually, if you look at what the Conservative Party has done in power over the last 13 years, um, it's really embraced, you know, what, what I talk about in the book as a liberal consensus. I mean, essentially, I think there have been sort of three stages to to this revolution from Thatcher onwards. Thatcher brought about a radical economic liberalism, which was about liberalising the economy, deregulating finance and essentially putting London on steroids. And that model of hyper globalisation really, you know, on one level, it did make the country richer, but it also made it much more unequal. And if you look at the evidence on the effects of Thatcherism, that's now crystal clear. Um, Economists now share a a broad consensus that the effects of hyperglobalization were very negative for workers and non-graduates. If you then fast forward to the Blair years, well, Blair and Brown essentially embraced Thatcher's economic legacy. Okay, they tinkered around the edges when it came to families and pensioners and, and sure start and things like that. But essentially, they embraced the fundamentals of Thatcher's radical economic liberalism. But they added to that a radical cultural liberalism. They added to that a broad and sweeping commitment to mass immigration, um, to what I would argue was the continued weakening of the cultural guardrails in society, a sort of loose universal commitment to these abstract ideas of diversity and multiculturalism, and and, and essentially Britishness became reframed around 
these very universal international themes, which left lots of voters thinking, well, you know, what is happening to you know, Britain's distinctive identity, culture and history? And alongside that, we had the Qualities Act, Human Rights Act. We had a whole, you know, what I would argue is the stage was, was essentially set for the, the, the onward march of radical progressivism. And then when David Cameron, the Liberal Conservative, eventually replaced New Labour, you know, he essentially accepted all of it. He accepted the Thatcherite economic legacy. He accepted the New Labour uh, cultural legacy. He put the pedal down, actually, on much of that. I mean, David Cameron and George Osborne described themselves as progressive conservatives with a with a straight face. So this was a this was really the next chapter in the liberal consensus. And even when we got to Brexit, you know, and that's why I think Brexit happened in this country. Very similar reasons in some senses in America with Trump, but many voters were just looking at this liberal consensus, which really only represented the values of about 20% of the country maximum. And I think voters looked at it and said, you know what, I don't want a pro-EU, pro-globalization, pro-immigration, pro-radical progressivism, pro-middle class consensus. I want something different in this country. And that essentially is what the vote for Brexit, in my mind at least, and I think the evidence supports me, was all about. But in the aftermath of Brexit, you know, we had a Conservative Party that because of where it's come from, it was completely unable to meet voters on that. So what happens? Immigration goes even higher, goes up to um, a net migration level of 504,000. The party does not actually push back on any of the big changes introduced by New Labour. If you look at the Conservatives today, they won't go anywhere near things like the Equality Act. They won't go anywhere near things like removing the country from the European Convention on Human Rights in order to deal with issues like the small boats that are crossing the channel. The Conservatives just have essentially accepted the, the liberal lodestar uh, and won't challenge any of it. So on all of these social, social and cultural questions, I think basically what we've got are sort of chinos, Conservatives in name only, and they're not really satisfying the appetite that's out there. So when you look at the issues that you talk about in this podcast, when you look at, say, for example, what we're teaching kids about um, you know, sex and gender, among other issues, I mean, the Conservatives are deeply um, hesitant to get involved in that because they're, I would argue, status-obsessed Tories. They view cultural questions as being beneath them. They're fundamentally about business tax and the economy, and they've not yet realized what I think the US Republicans have, what the Italian conservatives have, what the Swedish conservatives and the French conservatives have, which is that people want a very different brand of conservatism now. They don't want this kind of race to the bottom, you know, economically and socially liberal brand of conservatism, which isn't really that different from social democracy. Uh, so it's going to be interesting to see where the conservatives go. But that's my essential assessment of how the party came really unstuck and why it's still, even today, in a very vulnerable position. Yes, you end up with this slightly paradoxical thing where the, the, the Conservatives, or some of them, do recognise what, that you know, they read polls too. They, they do know what the public thinks. So you end up with, for instance, quite tough talk on things like small boats. So this is um, illegal immigration um, across the Channel from France. Uh, all sorts of promises to crack down on it, which of course invite from the new elites, um, as you describe them, you know, they have kittens <laughs> about about the, this kind of tough talk from the Home Secretary. But this, as you say, it's combined with 504,000 net migration last year. I mean, the idea that the Conservative Party is anti-immigration is for the birds. I mean, they've, they've, they've invited historically unprecedented levels of, of net migration into the country. I think that what they're trying to do, um, I'd say with limited success, is signal to voters who are unhappy about that level of mass migration 
that they are willing to talk tough, etc., but not actually do it. And I, I don't think that that smoke and mirrors exercise is working. I think, well, I mean, Brexit showed us that people are definitely dissatisfied with what they see happening. And I, I mean, the, 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 the question, I suppose, for you as a political scientist is, why hasn't there been a party that has successfully, or a faction within the Conservatives, that has successfully offered the sort of economically left, socially right combination that voters apparently are desperate for? Well, the short answer to that is a majoritarian first past the post system, and and it imposes such a formidably high um, barrier to entry for any new party. And you know, in similar um, in America, you know, um, where you know new parties, independent parties, are almost doomed from the very uh, start. You know, the, the 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 classic case of that was was the UK Independence Party in twenty fifteen, which polled nearly thirteen percent of the vote and and won just one seat in the House of Commons. So that's why many of the people who desire reform and change in 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 Britain now will will be calling for proportional representation and a change in the election system. So that only really leaves one possible alternative, which is to change what what you might call the dominant faction within within one of the governing parties. And there are um, conservatives who now say that actually the only way of, you know, meeting voters on these issues is to try and change the dominant faction within the conservatives. But, you know, that's where you run up, up against what what you might call the old elite in British politics. I mean, the donor class, um, the upper echelons of the Conservative Party, CCHQ, the party headquarters, are basically dominated by by um, old elites who don't really have much of an interest in reforming the country on that basis. You know, they have a very invested, vested interest in sustaining very high rates of um, inward migration, largely to support business and to support a pretty hollowed out um, economic model that we have that's simply based on consumption and cheap labour. And, you know, that was perhaps best symbolised by Boris Johnson, who, you know, basically, I would argue, sort of gaslit the entire country and convincing them into thinking he was a conservative when actually what happened was the complete opposite. I mean, you know, most people who even like Boris Johnson aren't aware of what he even did when he was in power, such as removing a requirement on British businesses to advertise jobs in Britain. You know, I mean, that is like the the sort of, you know, base level, most conservative thing probably you could do. And then he got rid of that. And then they lowered salary thresholds so that people could come and work in the country on as, as low wage as £23,000 a year. In some cases, £20,000 a year. The average wage is £27,000. So the idea that this is a high skill migration policy that's geared towards, you know, improving Britain's economy and and so on is for the birds. I mean, basically what what we have is the continuation of what we had pre-2016, which is why I talk about the new elite in this liberal consensus. It hasn't gone anywhere. I mean, essentially we're out of the EU, but but socially, culturally, you know, the fabric of our society is still fundamentally wedded to it. And and a lot of voters haven't haven't realized that. A lot of politicians have no serious interest in changing that. If you look, for example, at the the Scotland um, issue recently, where we had the Scottish National Party campaigning for the Gender Recognition Reform Bill, which would essentially make it um, legal for 16-year-olds to, um, quote-unquote, change their gender without any medical supervision after a very short period of time and so on. Um, even Conservatives who oppose that piece of legislation, which, by the way, 80% of voters also oppose that idea, um, Conservatives opposed it from the position of defending the Equalities Act. So they said, well, this piece of legislation, if it's enacted, is going to conflict with UK wide equalities legislation brought in by New Labour. There wasn't even a conservative critique of that policy. So that, in a sense, goes 
is a, is, a, is a good example of of what I'm arguing in the book, which is you know essentially the the sort of new elite and cultural drift is so is so profound now is so visible that even the governing Conservative Party can't really do anything but go along with it. It certainly can't challenge it. It certainly can't overturn it. And that's that's something that I think many voters are slowly but steadily realising. Um, and I don't think the big winner of all of this because of our system will be populism. I think a big winner in all of this will be apathy. I think a lot of people who have taken a punt over the last 10 years in voting for a, a different politician or, or a different type of politics will probably now come to the conclusion that actually it's impossible to change, to, to change a system um, and they're just going to sit it out and stay at home. So I suspect apathy will end up being the big winner. Do you not think that there might be... So if, as is predicted, the Conservatives lose the next election, um, some people are predicting or hoping that there might be a sort of regrouping in opposition. I mean, at the last leadership election, if if the Tory members had had their say, we probably now have Kemi Badenoch as Prime Minister. Um, she, for, for, for those who don't know, um, she's a sort of very anti-woke um, figure enormously popular in much of the media and among the Tory membership. Um, also, British Nigerian woman, um, extremely is still young, very capable, very you know well regarded uh, um, among many people in politics and elsewhere. Um, but she was not able to um, make it into the into the final two because it was actually the the parliamentary party um, that blocked her. If the, if, the, if the members had had their way, we would have had a much more um, culturally right executive than we do now uh you know is it possible that actually the the, the parliamentary party might realize in opposition that they need to be more attentive to what voters actually think uh, possibly but i think the the underlying issue is whether and this is a global question for conservatives really you know what is conservatism in the early 2020s and i think fundamentally you know the conservative party is not going to be able to answer that question through through one leader, I think they, they, you know, they have to really go on a go on a search to try and figure out what kind of party they are and what kind of party they want to be. Kemi, Kemi Badnock certainly got some really good answers to that question. Um, I think she's she's roughly in the right place culturally. Whether she is economically, I think, is another question for for another day. But but if you look at conservatives around the globe, you know, the ones who have realised the direction of travel, who are I think finally coming to the conclusion they're going to need to change their relationship with the state. They're going to need to use the organs of the state to try and balance the the playing field a little bit. They're going to have to have a very different view on on things like migration and the pace of um, demographic change. They're going to have to um, reassert you know their values in a more in a more vigorous way. They're going to have to. Um, start outlining a serious defence of things like the family and the traditional cultural guardrails in society. They're going to have to speak very openly and directly about big tech and the challenges that it faces and also China. And I think if you compare and contrast people like, you know, say, Georgia Maloney, Ron DeSantis, um, you know, sort of Peter Thiel, um, you know, conservatives outside of Britain, whether you agree with them, whether you disagree with them, they are all saying far more interesting things than British Tories. Like British Tories are lost. I mean, they're sort of, you know, they're divided between people who want to rewind the clock to 1987 and bring back, you know, a, a sort of modern day version of Nigel Lawson's budget 
um, or they're sort of, you know, kind of dreaming of going back to, you know, the pre-Brexit era where, you know, they they thought everything was good um, uh, or, the, or they want to run back to their core territory in, you know, the southeast Tory shires, which we saw during the levelling up debate, which is a, the idea that the Conservatives in, in government need to invest in areas like our Rust Belt or the Red Wall. And the Conservatives never really fully reconciled themselves to that. They never kind of understood the importance of that because they're primarily a sort of southern southern party. And I think that for all of those reasons, actually, it's not just about who can lead the party, who could go up against the party's donor class, which would be another big challenge. But but what is the British Conservative Party today? And, you know, um, a colleague of mine, Andrew Gamble, has long argued that the reason the Conservatives have been the most successful party in pretty much a history of democracy is because they've always reinvented themselves at different points in history. And I think ultimately, the Conservatives now will need to reinvent themselves if they're going to somehow stay stay around for the longer term. Um, yes, the system makes it hard for a new party to break through. It's not completely impossible. As the Labour Party will tell you, the Labour Party replaced the Liberals. And as the Canadians will tell you, Conservative Party in Canada in the early 90s was replaced. I mean, it's not completely implausible, difficult, but but not implausible. So hopefully we'll, we'll have a more interesting debate next year about what is conservatism and we we will have in the US and the UK these two these two you know enormous elections um where we will have two very different brands of conservative politics going into those elections with very different policy offers and on the one hand you've got the republicans who have actually agreed to make woke or anti-woke anti-progressivism a central plank of their presidential campaign and on the other hand, you have the British Tories who just won't go near any of those issues. They're incredibly hesitant to go near those issues. So seeing how those elections turn out, I think, is also going to be pretty interesting. Um, so we'll see. I think an enormous barrier um, for British Conservatives in uh, talking about these cultural topics, which we know um, are very important among much of the public um is it it's low status right like if you if you you come from the new elite you socialize with them you, you live in london you have this very telling bit in your book where you talk about labor mp uh giving a speech in her constituency in yorkshire and waxing lyrical about the sort of local waterfalls or whatever to uh, completely dumbfounding the audience because they don't have any waterfalls in there because basically she 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 She's never visited her constituency. She knew nothing about her constituency and went to Oxford and, you know, was basically parachuted in and spent all her time in London. You know, it's very, very common for Conservative MPs to to basically only socialise among the new elite and to to care about their social status in that in those circles in order to talk about things like, I don't know, I mean, it's still a majority of the public who favour reintroducing capital punishment. Very hard to find even Conservative MPs who'll talk publicly about that and to do so at most you know london think um dinner tables is you know is 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 really risking your reputation um but i guess if they're going to if they're going to actually trying to to to, to capture this this new moment they have to they have to suck it up <laughs> well i mean if you look at the reaction you know we had a a, a new deputy leader of the conservative party lee anderson who suggested that you know, they, we should bring back the death penalty for some crimes because it had a hundred percent success rate. And uh, you know, sort of Westminster was in meltdown about this. And you look at the polling, and 
typically it's between about 40, 50 percent will say bring back capital punishment. But then if you ask with regards to, say, killing police officers, killing children, it's up to about 70, 80 percent um, on a whole suite of other issues as well. I mean, if you take and I, I've been polling them recently, if you take what, what I would call radical progressive positions, let's rename pregnant women, pregnant persons, let's allow children to change their gender, let's have puberty blockers um, being introduced um, and being taught to children in school, all of this sort of stuff. I mean, this is typically 5-10% um, support max. I mean, these are fringe minority issues. Now, people say, well, voters don't care about those issues. Well, you know, my response to that is twofold. One is look at Brexit. Nobody really, if you look at the polling ahead of Brexit, nobody really cared that much about Britain's relationship with Europe. It was a 5% issue in the polling. And then when it became a national issue, because some politicians, you know, I would argue were brave enough to talk about it and make it an issue, then actually everybody suddenly tuned in and started to discuss that. The other example is America. If you look at America and you look at the debate over schooling and what is being taught to children and how they're being taught about these issues, five years ago, it was a non-issue. Now it's, you know, top three issue in the country. It's going to be all over the presidential campaign next year. So, you know, if you want to drive the salience of issues, it is often about the supply side. It's about finding political, civic, cultural figures who are brave enough to actually raise the volume, increase the volume on those debates. And once that happens, voters begin to tune in, as they did in Scotland. You know, when when, when voters really looked at the Gender Recognition Reform Bill, you know, the vast majority of them said, this is crazy. I don't support this. And I don't think we should be doing this to kids or allowing this to happen. But what what you often find, and I talk a lot about this in the book with radical progressives, um, is about, you know, they represent only about 15% of the country, but because they're very vocal, um, they're very prominent on social media, and they're also deeply intolerant of anybody who expresses a different view of their own or who challenges what they consider to be sacred values. Um, often the moderates in the room are basically silenced or stigmatized, you know, as being socially unacceptable or as having a discredited voice. Now, on a whole range of issues from immigration to Western nations being racist to what we should teach kids to how we think about our history, the view of radical progressives is often the view of a 10 to 15 percent minority. And, and very few people are aware of that. So they feel sort of quite scared and quite sort of, um, you know, intimidated. You know, another example would be take the Gary Lineker posturing that we had in Britain, a very famous footballer who was very, very strongly opposed to the government's plan to essentially immediately deport um, asylum seekers and illegal migrants who are crossing the channel in small boats. He said this is absolutely outrageous. He essentially compared it to, to Nazi Germany and everybody in the progressive class on Twitter um, said, you know, wonderful Gary Lineker, I completely share this view, as does much of the country. Now, if you watch that conversation, you might think half the country share Jack, uh, share Gary Lineker's view. It's a 16% position. Only 16% of people strongly opposed what the government was trying to do. Most people in the country want strong and controlled borders. Most people in the country do not want illegal migration to become a feature of their national life. And most people certainly don't want to be paying six million pounds a day to put those people into hotels. Now, this might strike the progressive class as being sort of unsavory and low status, but that this is a reality of public opinion. You know, this is a reality of how people live their lives. They're proud of their country. They want to think um, well of their country. They don't want to obsess 
or, or be told why their identity is a source of shame and embarrassment. Uh, and they want to be able to control who comes into their home and who uh, and who leaves. And I think ultimately that's where I think our politicians have, have come unstuck and much of the new elite who dominate the cultural conversation have come unstuck. One of the um, a view that you'll quite often hear among um, uh, journalists who are a um, member of this sort of radical progressive 15%, which is to say probably most journalists, although I should say that actually British media is one of those institutions that hasn't been fully captured by progressives in that you still do have quite a lot of um, right-wing newspapers, um, including the one that I work for, Daniel. And um, I guess that's probably because... Um, it's sensitive to sales. I mean, I really do think one of the reasons that the BBC is able to has been has has been captured so successfully is because the BBC doesn't need to sell itself. It's dependent on the license fee, so it doesn't matter if they're promoting ideas that are unpopular with the public because they don't need the public to purchase their product. Whereas with newspapers, you d- you depend on sales. You know, the, the the reason the Daily Mail takes socially conservative positions is because it's the most it's the it's the best read newspaper in the country, and socially conservative positions are popular. Um, but anyway, a lot of journal a lot of journalists are um, are very progressive, and one of the views that you'll hear on um, the, you know the culture war is basically, you know. Why do you care? Why are you making this into an issue? You know, why are you obsessed with trans? Why are you obsessed with small boats? Why, you know, why are you sort of why why are conservatives sort of conjuring these issues out of thin air and 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 trying to rile people up over what is basically trivia? To which I say, no, hang on, the, 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 like whether or not you, you you want to disagree with them, the conservative side is just defending the status quo. It like they they are opposing very very rapid social change you know something like uh, if you identify as a man or a woman then you are magically a man or a woman immediately you know that is a, an extremely non-commonsensical view that has suddenly been launched at people and is and it has been enshrined in law like uh, i don't think that it is waging culture war for people to want to say you know hang on which if you look at the polling is basically what people think you know that like genuine transphobia is rare what is common is for people to be cautious and concerned and as you know as you, you mentioned Scotland that what's really striking if you look at the Scottish polling is that people didn't really care that much or have much of an opinion really on the Gender Recognition Act up until the SNP started pushing for more radical reforms and then all of a sudden people learned that this was an issue became became more knowledgeable about it and thought hold on you know <laughs> this is this is it absolutely and, and you can look at say for example um ask mums and dads up and down the country, um, do you think parents should have a right to see what their kids are being taught about these issues in school? I've asked them this many times, about 75-80% say absolutely. Now what's happening is the government is sort of inching towards that position. It said it's going to do a review of what what organisations are are being brought in to teach kids about these issues. Miriam Cates, who's a Conservative MP here in Britain, one of the most impressive um, and intellectually um, uh, serious politicians in, in Westminster has been campaigning on this issue, revealing what is happening in primary and secondary schools up and down the country. And, you know, we go through this bizarro loop where progressives will say, well, nothing's happening. 
And then you'll end up having, you know, a big dollop of evidence put on the table. And then they say, oh, you know, that's nothing. Don't worry. Why are you such a racist? Why are you such a, a transphobe for worrying about this? You know, so we go through this ridiculous loop all the time. But it speaks to the failure of the conservatives, Louise, because what conservatives have essentially allowed to happen over the last 20 years is they've allowed a large array of issues, their core issues, family, national identity, national history, um, national borders, um, who we are, to be rebadged, reframed as culture wars and to be considered toxic and socially unacceptable. That even if you talk about these issues now, if you talk about our history, if you talk about women's rights, if you talk about the rights of children, you know, you are engaging in divisive culture war politics. It's a very, very subtle and shrewd strategy typically pursued by radical progressives. But conservatives have basically vacated territory. They've retreated and allowed all of this to happen. And because they consider these issues to be low status and they won't go near them, unlike their American equivalents, who have basically you know, said, actually, we're up for this fight. And I don't agree with Donald Trump, but I certainly have sympathy for the view that if you want to have an intellectual and a political battle over these issues to do with with women, children and family, we're going to have that battle. Um, British Tories won't go near it. Right. They, they, they view this as being, you know, toxic, stigmatizing, divisive. And I think that partly is is a reflection of, of the power of, of what, I, what I call the new elite and the liberal consensus that is basically now captured, captured almost all of the, the political parties. And that's reflected in the, the state of our national conversation. What's amazing is actually that Miriam Cates got through uh, Tory party selection because actually that's the institution, the, like, the crucial institution that that is is pushing the Conservatives in this in this towards this liberal drift, and that it's it's just really hard to actually get selected as an MP um, if you don't hold to basically Cameron era um, social and economic positions. This is why I think the Conservative Party is still deeply vulnerable. I mean, I really do think. If you had um, if you had a strong voice outside of the Conservative Party, you know, and there is a view that's pushed by some figures, Peter Hitchens being the most obvious example, which is that there is absolutely no way of reform. You can never reform the Conservative Party. It's simply it, it's simply a blockage to any interesting, meaningful reform. You know, I, I do think the Conservatives um, philosophically, politically, culturally are very vulnerable, uh, even 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 now. I just simply think over the next 10 years, both the scale and the pace of change, which is going to be enormous in in Britain, like it will be in many other Western democracies, is going to knock voters sideways. Because I sit in focus groups with them all the time. Most voters have not yet tweaked what's happened in terms of the changes that have been introduced uh, into the country. And I think that that is going to um, that is going to drive a lot of public concern. And I don't think the Conservatives will be able to supply that with with a with a serious message so i do think structurally they're very they're very vulnerable um if you look at the parties which are thriving you know if you take i take maloney as an example in italy she's a and she says this openly she's a scrutonian conservative you know she is essentially um uh driving an argument that is very different from the cameroon thatcherite conservative argument in britain she's very very focused on um, the promotion of national preference, national sovereignty, you know, a national conservatism. And I think this this emerging debate about national conservatism, what is it? 
uh, and how is it different from from uh, a more liberal conservatism is probably going to be the debate in Britain over the next three to five years. I think it's going to be one of the big talking points um, because it is probably the only thing that can hold together this new electoral coalition that the party now has. I mean, working class, non-graduate, older pensioners, small towns, coastal cities, um, culturally conservative on all the issues that we've been talking about from from immigration through to uh, through to issues like um, uh, you know, sex and gender and so forth. And I think that that's going to be probably the only framework that 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 will allow the party to to get through, because there's no way London and university towns are going to vote conservative anytime soon. I mean, those areas are gone. I mean, they're gone for a long time uh, as the graduate class continues to drift leftwards. Uh, on all of these cultural questions, the great awakening that's that's unfolding is a very real thing. And, you know, I think it will increasingly push these educational groups in very different directions. Um, and, 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 and also women and men, to some extent, I think if you look at young, young university educated women under the age of 20, 25, 26, they're much further to the left, uh, culturally, and politically than their male counterparts. And they're sort of drifting apart rapidly. And there's a sort of known unknown, which is, well, is this going to be is this going to be a blip or is this actually a sort of permanent realignment that seems to be taking place around these cultural questions? And that's true elsewhere as well, isn't it? And I am am I right that in uh, America there wasn't much of a sex skew up until relatively recently, and now there's an enormous sex skew, particularly when it comes to unmarried graduate women. Uh, so strongly blue in America. Yeah, there's there's been quite some really interesting work on that over the last five five months or so, and they've essentially moved sharply to the left. Um, British um, university educated uh, women as well, uh, typically about 85 percent, are now voting for liberal left parties, whether Labour, uh, Green, SNP, um, Lib Dem. Um, so, 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 so we're seeing something similar, and and that sort of raises all kinds of questions um, about uh, about the future. I mean, there are some outliers that are interesting. I mean, if you look at France, for example, um, young non-graduate women in the hospitality sector have been overwhelmingly supportive of Marine Le Pen at recent elections. You know, they've really gone in a very different direction. And there are a lot. There's a sort of debate about why that is. Is it the educational effect that graduate Graduate women are being pushed leftwards. Um, non-graduate women in France are, are, are moving a bit to the right. Is it Le Pen herself? You know, she sort of portrays a particular vision of of of, uh, of, of what being a woman is all about. And um, or is it is it is it is it simply that 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 um, some of the trends that have been unfolding in in America and Britain have not been unfolding to the same extent in in other European societies? You know, we'll have to see. But I think it's one of these things that's going to have pretty big implications, especially looking at, at the men who, young non-graduate men who, who I think, you know, will increasingly find themselves, you know, politically and culturally in a very different place, you know, less successful in the education system, politically much further to the right, often not living in the cities and university towns, um, you know, may, may end up feeling um, quite resentful of some of that change. And I think we don't know where that's going to go, but I think it's something that we can see in the data that's very visible um, and it'll be interesting to, interesting to watch it unfold. And what's really striking to me is that this is a new phenomenon. You know, men and women historically have not actually voted all that differently. Um, and maybe this also has something to do with people um, 
just the, the there being greater polarization between the sexes on all sorts of things and people not forming long-term relationships in the way that they used to and and just a general fracturing of kind of um sexual relations which seems to be bearing out in the polls um yeah i mean so so do you think that there's a good chance that the conservative party could be overtaken by a populist right party that that actually could surmount the first past the post obstacle and and really make gains within the next decade or so i think one of the most interesting things happening right now in in britain and america is maybe outside the realm of party politics but is 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 the beginning of a a very distinctive ecosystem and i think it's about the you know the, the rivers or the sea in which political parties are swimming and i think if you look at the rise of you know YouTube, Substack, uh, you know, for the first time, really, in in modern history, we have an intellectual class that is not dependent upon the institutions or indeed, you know, political parties or universities, in in terms of getting their ideas out there. And I think that that ecosystem, you can see, for example, in Britain is very visible. Um, It's becoming very, in many respects, it's where all of the interesting ideas are. Um, you know, I think there are two things that, 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 that are true at the same time. The first is most of the interesting ideas right now are on the right, and most of them are outside the legacy institutions. And I think that that is one of the interesting points of where we are in, in the intellectual cycle. So so there is a question about whether those ideas can, can sort of begin to bleed into the, the major parties, can begin to change um, the national culture. Um, as I say, you know, the majoritarian system itself is a nightmare to to try and overcome. But it, it seems to me that compared to where we were, say, five years ago, intellectually, um, I'm a bit more optimistic. I sort of think we're in a much more interesting place at the moment. You know, there are vehicles, magazines, websites, um, think tanks and so on that that are presenting a very different view um, and, a, and an alternative to a liberal consensus. And I think that has also got a sense of coherency and structure to it um you know that uh, that i think probably many people listening to this podcast and other and other podcasts can sense that actually there is a vibrant ecosystem in place and that may be actually what 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 becomes a first step in trying to trying to create some kind of alternative to to what is clearly not working um when i look at the left of politics at the moment i don't really see any new ideas at all i mean if you look at say the labor party in the uk the Democrats, I mean, obviously, with the exception of radical progressivism, which is kind of, you know, not intellectually that new, but is also in the process, I think, of eating itself in many in many ways. But there's intellectually, there's not much new. And I think that that's, you know, that's going to also create a lot of interesting um, debates and discussions in, in the years ahead. Yeah, I'd agree with you. I think the right is intellectually much more interesting at the moment, if only because it's sort of fresh. I mean, I think the nature of being the dominant ideology, which, as you identify, I think I think progressivism is, at least within elite circles, is um, y- you can rest on your laurels and become very sort of stagnant, I think, intellectually. So, yes, you're seeing a lot of um, uh, fresh new media outlets and voices and so on from the right, which are are, are so much more stimulating, I think. And it's easier to be in oppositional mode as a political movement or as a as an intellectual movement. It's always easier to be in an oppositional mode. So, you know, even if you end up with, um, you know, Democrats winning again next year and the Labour Party taking power in Britain, I think a lot of the the um, you know, the, the, the 
YouTube channels, television channels, podcasts, and others that we, we end up talking about will will simply drift into oppositional mode, and it will probably end up becoming becoming even more interesting. So, um, I'm not sort of worried about on 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 the level of ideas. Um, it's more the system and how you can try and navigate an uh, election system that is fundamentally um, wired against new entrants, and that's. <laughs> That's one of the big problems that all first pass post systems have. But uh, yeah, we'll see. Um, is this uh, drift politically towards progressivism likely to become more entrenched by um, societal ageing and the fact that you have um, the traditional ideas still, uh, I mean, to the extent that there is still a sort of old elite who still have some power and still hold traditional ideas, they tend to be older um, whereas, you know, as you say, 80, 85% of young graduate women are, are, are voting left. And I'd say that in some, uh, elite circles that, that, you know, you're talking 99%, um, as that, as that generation, my generation and younger become the, the, the dominant generation in positions of influence within their institutions, I guess, you know, this could only become more exaggerated, this gulf between the elite and the rest of the population. I think I think that's definitely possible and and plausible. I, if you look at the data, there's a bit of a debate about are we on the cusp of actually a sweeping political and cultural revolution that is going to define the next half century, or or are we seeing something of of a uh, of a generational blip that that may that may prove to be more short term. Um, my my gut instinct and reading of the evidence is you know what what we're living through is the beginning of a long-term sustained political and and cultural revolution that will continue to accelerate and i think the data is pretty clear at the uh, extent to which many of these ideas are supported by by new generations and also as the graduate class continues to expand i think that will that will also feed into it and in some sense you know politics as well if you think about if you look at say white university educated liberals in america uh, one of the remarkable things that happened after trump is you know they sort of doubled down on their progressivism and social liberalism and became even more committed to many of their ideas so you saw sort of a counter revolution to trump and so even if you get a pushback you know um politically i think there's a kind of ratchet effect that comes with with liberalism and progressivism where it sort of just continues to escalate and um and they sort of search, continue to search for the the sort of utopia and if um if that continues then you know there are going to be strange and unpredictable ruptures along the way if you look for example at latino and hispanic voters in the US who are rapidly moving from left to right partly in response to things like defund the police and some of the radical policies on 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 gender and stuff like that which clearly clash with their more socially culturally conservative values there will be strange configurations in politics to come in the same way that i don't think in britain many british muslims um sikhs and hindus are, are comfortable with what's happening in school and are comfortable with the way in which social liberalism sort of you know erodes the cultural guardrails that you know many Many of those voters as well care a great deal about national identity, religion and so on. So I think that there are going to be some strange um, and unpredictable uh, shifts along the way. But 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 it's difficult to see how 
now that this is out of the box, how it how it goes back in. I think you know the institutions are invested in keeping keeping it going. I think um, I think the uh, you know the the sort of parents and the professional managerial classes are clearly sort of invested, and I think the Gen Z. You know, if you look at all of the attitudinal data and where they sit on issues like free speech, uh, gender, migration, net zero, I mean, they're they're pretty they're pretty they're pretty on board. Um, there are always outliers. You know, I'm I teach in in Kent in the southeast of England, which is a pretty conservative part of the country, and most of my students are, are Gen Z, and you know, a lot of them will say <clears throat> they, they they you know they've got deep reservations about woke politics and they feel you know that uh they're very instinctively you know conservative on a lot of issues so there are there are outliers um you know about one in five um um but but the dominant faction um is very progressive on a lot of these issues especially in the elite institutions where as you know um you know this takes on a, a completely different life form and becomes a sort of you know the epicenter of of uh, of the new religion so uh, in the extended bit of the episode, I want to talk more about um, the role of meritocracy in all of this and the sort of um, self-segregation of the elite. Um, but one last question before we do. I'm sure you've heard the comparison that plenty of other people have come up with between our own era of political disruption and the Reformation. Um, and, you know, like in the Reformation, you, you it was the the... Protestantism was, was at least in the UK, primarily driven by young and very, very kind of fervent formers against an old Catholic elite. And, you know, I mean, fortunately, the comparison falls down in the sense that so far ours has been bloodless. You know, <laughs> we're basically talking about a cold civil war, um, both here and in the UK. But um, I think the comparison is very is a very pertinent one because we are talking about sort of enormously different worldviews and sets of values and you know given if, if history is 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 a template that probably does suggest that there might be some sort of counter reformation um in the works do you do you do you do you see that kind of um uh opposition brewing with time like i mean this this seems to be a very I think that this is an enormous historical event and I think that really what's 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 going on like the, the big event of our lifetimes and beyond is actually dechristianization like what we're going through is the effect of of Christendom withdrawing and now we have these two fa- factions kind of fighting over f- fighting over ideological dominance I I I expect that that this will last for my entire lifetime do you think though that there will be um do you expect the woke side to triumph, essentially, in the end? I I think it, it's all going to come down to leadership and whether we have political movements and figures who are willing to um, lead that kind of counter-revolution. Um, I think uh, if you really boil the leaders of the kind of woke revolution down to numbers, you're looking at 15 Fifteen percent max around that figure, but 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 you know the moderates are very scared to engage with them and are very scared to to challenge them on a lot of issues. So um, unless we can find um, some somebody or something that's capable of inspiring 
moderate masses to actually push back against some of this, then then you know the the minority radical activists will end up dominating the public square, as I'd argue they're doing now, and they will you know remove dissent and they will discredit dissent and they will try and cancel and and silence people who they consider to be um, betraying the revolution. And I think you know history gives us lots of insight. I mean, more recent experience I would point to is just the experience of communism communism and communist regimes and just how much they work to silence and discredit challenges. And that essentially, I think, is something that we're seeing in a very similar in a very similar way. I mean, I just finished reading um, uh, The Constitution of Knowledge um, that Jonathan, uh, Jonathan uh, I can't remember the author now, but talks about the epistemic class, the way in which essentially when a society's epistemic class is completely dominated by one group, I mean, you know, everything then flows from that social norms, um, law, uh, culture, ways of life, and it all starts to become reshaped. And I think, you know, we are living through something, something like that. So, um, and I agree with you on Christendom, I think essentially, the the grand narratives and the grand meaning, uh, or the the story about who we are, has become so, um, so lost uh, that it's created an enormous vacuum, which which radical progressivism, with its promise of a utopia, with its promise of salvation, with its emphasis on um, on activism, on on recognition, um, on victimhood, um, uh, I think you know offers people, especially more fragile. Um, people, uh, even more narcissistic people, a very clear narrative that they can subscribe to. And so, again, what's the alternative? What's the counter-narrative to that? And whenever people say counter-narrative, I always begin to get suspicious because it sounds so abstract and so vague. I mean, you hear people in the sort of, on on the kind of anti-woke right, talking about building a new story for the West. But, you know, what does that really mean? And I think a far more practical way forward is thinking about actually how uh, non-anti-woke people can actually start to reclaim parts of the state and start to re- use use parts of the state to to balance the playing field. Um, narratives and stories to me sound so vague that uh, um, unless you've got your hands on the instruments of power, I think um, you know that that stuff is more is more theoretical than anything. Um, so, I mean, I'm sceptical uh, of where we're going, but I agree with you. I think we are on the cusp of something that's going to last certainly for decades um, and will come to be seen as a cultural as a cultural revolution. It will come to be seen as something that is fundamentally, um, you know, sweeping and transformative. I, I think we're just, we, we, we're at the beginning of that and the 2010s will come to be seen, I think, as a very pivotal decade um, in the beginning of that. Hi, thank you so much, Matt. I'm going to wrap it up here for for, for free subscribers. Um, could you let uh, everyone know where they can uh, where they can buy your book and uh, where they can find find more of your work? Well, Valley's Voice and Virtue um, came out about ten days ago, so you'll find it on on Amazon, Waterstones, and elsewhere. And on Twitter, you'll find me debating with the new elite about why. <laughs> debating yeah (laughs) well they don't want to have a debate that's the thing i mean that's the other thing about this group they're very the evidence shows they're the most likely to unfriend block and harass 
people who hold political beliefs that uh, they disagree with or who speak on behalf of people who might hold beliefs they disagree with. So that's also been another confirmation of the thesis over the last two weeks. All right. Thank you so much, Matt. Thank you so much for watching that episode of Maiden Mother Matriarch and for all of your support. It means an enormous amount for the growth of the show. If you want to hear bonus content, an extra 20, 30 minutes of conversation with the guest, maybe a little bit more personal, a little bit less filtered, then you can go to my Substack at louiseperry.substack.com where you can sign up for extended episodes and also bonus episodes and you can also access our chat community. You can also support the show by subscribing on YouTube or subscribing wherever you get your podcasts and rating and reviewing on Apple Podcasts is also really great for encouraging other people to give the show a try. Please also spread the word, tell people that you know who you think might like it to give it to give it a shot. Um, the word of mouth effect is really valuable, so we'd really appreciate it. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening, watching and supporting what we're doing. <laughs>